That's a powerful statement. The church is God's plan A, <clears throat> and there is no plan B. And if that's true, if that statement is true, then how important is it that we not only say that we believe in God and his word, that we not only say that we love Jesus and each other, that we not only say that we live by the gospel, but that we actually do it. Because if the church, the, the body of Christ, is indeed God's plan A for his gospel being spread around the world, and if there is no backup plan to that, then what is at stake if we fail to actually live the gospel according to his word? In Hosea, God judges the priests, those who are supposed to be leading his people because they failed to teach the Israelites about God. And so in chapter 4, verse 6, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Now today, we are the priesthood. And we are responsible to make disciples of all people, according to Jesus in Matthew 28. And what is at stake if we fail to do that is nothing less than human souls. Living the gospel actually has nothing to do with personal prosperity and everything to do with personal responsibility to see to it that we take everyone that we possibly can with us into the kingdom of God. And people say, well, pastor, I can't save anyone. Only God can do that. That's true. But we have a great responsibility in that happening. Jesus' brother Jude writes in his letter, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It sounds like today. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So, obviously, we have a great responsibility in the salvation of others, and that means actually living the gospel. Okay? We're not talking about perfection here. Hear me. None of us is perfect. We're talking about believing in the gospel to the point that we actually live out daily how Jesus told us to live, mistakes and all. We actually follow Christ wherever he leads us, even when that's well away from comfort and security and personal interest. And that isn't necessarily the westernized version of Christianity that has by and large, I think, been taught over the past several generations in this country. But I would submit to you today that that is, in fact, the only true gospel. The one where we give up our lives completely, for the sake of it. In, in Luke 14, 33, Jesus said, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And of course, giving up all that you have to follow Christ will look different for everyone because we all have different gifts and different callings and different hang-ups and different fears. And we all have different idols in our lives. And so God calls us all to follow him by laying down whatever it is in the way in our lives of that happening. And that's different for everyone. In fact, in fact, there's a real danger in teaching that following Christ looks only one way. This is how a lot of cults 
get started. I'm not talking about deviating from the gospel, understand. But you have a guy who decides to make a radical choice to follow God. And it may even start with the very pure intentions. But some of the people who do that become convinced that everyone should have to do it the same way that they did it. That everyone should have to follow the same formula. And often they'll end up turning that formula into a false religion. And anyone who doesn't submit to their way of doing it is the enemy. And so they, they isolate themselves and their followers believing that they're the only true chosen ones of God. Which is incidentally one reason why it's a very good thing for churches to be a part of a larger fellowship or organization of churches. Because it helps us remain accountable to sound doctrine. Obviously there are large church organizations that are cults as well. So I'm I'm not suggesting that denominations are the ultimate answer or that independent churches cannot be rock solid for God. They certainly can. I'm simply saying that we have to be careful in taking the specific path that God has led us down and trying to impose that on every other person that we come in contact with because he leads different people down all different kinds of paths in life. The key is that all of those paths follow him. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he directed them to leave behind different aspects of their lives, depending on who he was talking to. To some he said, stop what you're doing. Leave your job behind and come follow me. And to some he said, leave your mother and father, leave your security net and come follow me. And to some he said, hey, sell everything that you own, give it to the poor and come follow me. So whatever we may have to give up, whatever specific path he leads us down, the point is that we're actually following Jesus Christ, that we're actually living the gospel and not some, not some powerless, watered-down, culturally acceptable version of the gospel because the stakes couldn't be any higher. Human souls are hanging in the balance. And so today, as we continue our sermon series, we're working our way through the book of Daniel. Uh, we're going to talk about what it actually looks like to, to truly live the gospel. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen. Um, we use the ESV version because that's the version that Jesus uses. It's a joke. You can, you can laugh. I'm just kidding. That's the version that I use. And uh, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that Daniel and his friends have been elevated in the Babylonian government. They've all been given official positions in the king's administration because through some intense seeking after God, Daniel was given the interpretation of a dream that had been troubling the king. He couldn't get any sleep. It was really messing him up. And so even though no one else could provide the king with any answers, Daniel and his friends did. And so as chapter 3 opens up, Not only are Daniel and his friends still alive and well after being uh, threatened with a horrible death sentence if they couldn't interpret the king's dream, but they're now thriving in the Babylonian culture as they've found great favor with the king and many others in the royal court. However, as we'll see, not everyone is as enthusiastic about Daniel and his friends being there. So let's read together chapter 3 of the book of Daniel starting with the first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This guy has the most creative ways of killing people. If you, if you were here last week, the thing with the treetops, it's amazing. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, do you think? With a, with a uh, promise like that. So the king has this monstrosity of a statue constructed out of gold from top to bottom. It's 90 feet high and uh, nine feet wide. And they set it up in Babylon where everyone could see it. And then he makes a decree. He passes a law that not just all the common people, but all the leaders and authorities in the entire region have to come and bow down before this enormous golden statue whenever the band strikes up the royal tune. And so the satraps, those, those were governors of other provinces, uh, were there, the prefects, all the other governors, the counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, all the officials of the various provinces were all there to pay homage to this golden statue. And yet... This wasn't simply something nice that Nebuchadnezzar had just randomly decided to do for himself one day. There was actually a very specific purpose for this new statue and the edict for everyone to bow down to it. It was, a, a, it was actually a calculated strategy by Nebuchadnezzar in response to a couple of major events that would prove later to be very pivotal in his life. And to be more specific, this was an act of great defiance by the king in response to these two very significant events. The first uh, was that it was an act of defiance toward all of these other earthly authorities over the provinces. Anyone anywhere near Babylon that might consider standing up against Nebuchadnezzar and his rule. Because from December 595 uh, to January 594 BC, there was a coup attempt. And these, some of these other rulers came against and tried to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. From outside of his royal court, they formed a, a, a coup. Now, it ultimately failed. But the king is responding here by erecting this massive statue and forcing all of these other rulers and leaders to bow down to it, defying anyone else to try and come against him upon threat of a horrible death. In effect, he's shaking his fist and all of the other ruling authorities around him at the time. And of course, Daniel is noticeably absent, and he could have been away on official business. We don't actually know for sure, but we do know that he was a part of the king's inner court, his inner circle inside the palace. And Nebuchadnezzar had no reason to question the loyalties of those in his inner circle because the coup attempt came from outside. But to all of those in the other provinces outside the royal palace, especially those with some measure of authority over those other provinces, the king shows pure defiance to anyone who would dare and come against him by making them all bow to this symbol of his own authority. But not only was it an act of defiance to these earthly authorities, it's also a great act of defiance toward God himself. If you remember from the last chapter, Daniel interpreted a dream that the king had. And it was about this huge image that represented not only Nebuchadnezzar's empire, but those empires that would rule after his own. The Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and ultimately the Kingdom of God. And so the word image here in verse 1 is the Aramaic word Selim. 
It's used five times in chapter 2 to describe this monument uh, that was in the king's dream. The very same word, Selim, is used 11 times here in chapter 3 to describe the monument that Nebuchadnezzar has made out of gold. The clear implication being that Nebuchadnezzar didn't simply erect a giant statue randomly that he thought up of. He erected the statue that was in his dream. It was in complete defiance to God. Why? Because in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, only the head of the statue was made out of gold, which according to Daniel represented the Babylonian Empire with all of these other empires coming after it represented by silver and bronze and iron and clay. But when the king makes his statue, here in chapter 3, the entire monument is made out of gold. You see, he's saying, I don't care what your God says. My kingdom shall have no end. The whole thing is gold. Defiant before his earthly authority and defiant before God, which at one point will become Nebuchadnezzar's undoing, his unwillingness to submit to any other authority in this life, including that of God himself. And we'll probably look into that next week. Of course, I think that we tend to paint the act of defiance uh, in a negative light. And certainly in the context of this story, at this point at least, it is negative. Because like it or not, we're all under authority, with God certainly being the ultimate authority, whether we admit to that or not. However, there is a defiance that is righteous and in fact commanded by God himself. Let's keep reading and we'll see. Verses 8 through 18. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Uh, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So, being God-loving Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the king's golden idol. And guess, guess who turns them in? Surprise, surprise. It's their pagan counterparts, the Chaldeans. We talked about them last week. It's not hard to see why. Uh, because in the last chapter, when the Chaldeans were completely unable to interpret the king's dream, it was Daniel and these three friends who heard from God and not only successfully interpreted the king's dream, but they were all promoted to important and influential positions in the king's administration. And even though they saved the Chaldeans' lives and many others in the process, there were obviously 
some very strong latent feelings left over from that event because here they not only inform the king of, of these three men's disobedience, but they do it with a lot of flair. When it says they maliciously accused the Jews in verse 8, that's the Aramaic word karats, which was a common idiom, a common saying within the Semitic languages. At the time, it meant to chew up. It was literally translated as they ate their pieces. Okay? This, it meant to devour someone piecemeal. Make no mistake. This was vicious and violent slander of these men. Payback from the Chaldeans for the embarrassment they suffered back in chapter 2, which was years earlier, but uh, sometimes old feelings die hard. Okay, And so they make the most of this opportunity to paint these young Jewish men in a very negative light before the king, and it works, as we'll see. But I want to point out here that just as we've been drawing relevant parallels from the first two chapters between Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian culture and Christ followers today in our own culture, we can gain, again, find common ground here in chapter 3 between the position that these Jewish men found themselves in, in Babylon, and the increasing tensions that we face today as followers of Jesus Christ in our own culture. And one of the great lessons to be learned from the actions of, of these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here in chapter 3, for Christians today is that following Jesus Christ is an act of defiance. Simply following Jesus Christ is an act of defiance. And again, I know that that's often portrayed um, in a negative light. But there are times when defiance is just what is needed if we're going to honor God. The first commandment was given to Moses. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 23. These Jewish men understood that there was only room for one God in their lives. And serving Him would mean defying all others. Likewise today, we cannot effectively live for Christ with one foot in His kingdom and one foot in the kingdoms of this world. And yet that is exactly what many professing believers are trying to do today. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a commitment. But many people want to commit to the world to the ways of the world and the ways of God. It's self-defeating to try and be a follower of Jesus Christ and at the same time align ourselves with the constantly changing whims of pop culture. It simply doesn't work. It doesn't work on either end, in fact. When we try to live on both sides of that proverbial fence, we become completely ineffective at accomplishing anything of meaningful value for the sake of the gospel or for the betterment of this world. It, it's, it's the lukewarm condition of the heart that's described in Revelation chapter 3 where God says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We just simply have to choose. We have to choose one way or the other. God's way or the way of man. Because the fact is there is no middle ground. Jesus explains it in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. In other words, he's saying you must accept one master and completely defy the other. Whether we like the analogy or not, the premise is sound. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is an act of defiance. It's defiance against all other gods, all other idols, all other affections that stand to get in the way of our pursuit after Christ. And yet there are so many people 
people in the church today, mostly in the Western church, who are convinced that they can make it work and even sell the idea to others that we can somehow be in love with God and obey His word and never do anything in defiance of our culture. And I'm telling you that is nothing more than a self-deluded pipe dream. There is no reality where we follow Christ and pander to pop culture at the same time. That is pure delusion. I'm not, talking, I'm not talking about belligerence. Please hear me. I'm not talking about even a hard attitude toward unbelievers. We're supposed to love those in the world, not judge them. You understand where I'm coming from. Look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego address the king, this pagan king, as they're defying his order to worship this false idol. Verses 16 through 18, they said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even as they're standing in complete defiance to the king's edict to bow before a false god, they're very, very respectful to his authority in their life, to Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll see that even more so next week uh, with Daniel in the next chapter. We can and we should, we absolutely should show a devotion of love and compassion and mercy and respect to everyone outside the church in this secular and increasingly godless culture that we live in. And we talked about that in chapter one of this series. But that does not mean that we're supposed to bow to the culture. That does not mean that we compromise our convictions to appease the cultural appetites of those who deny the very existence of God and dishonor Him in every conceivable way. We are in no way or in any part instructed in His Word to pander to the evil of this world. On the contrary, we're commanded to defy evil and stand for Christ in the very face of our opposition. I'm just telling you, I don't think there's time enough in this life for politically correct religion. We just don't have time for a spineless faith that's more concerned about not offending others than it is about telling them the truth. There's too much at stake. Human souls are at stake. And often the only thing standing between them and the blackness of an eternity without God is our testimony. So why in the world would we allow ourselves to get so wrapped up in trying to please everyone that we water down the church to try and make it more attractive to a secular culture? That's not our job. Jesus builds the church by the work of the Holy Spirit, which is expressed, how? Through His unchanging word and our uncompromising testimony. It's simply unavoidable. If we're to be effective in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're to be effective followers of Jesus Christ, that will mean at times that we must defy evil in this world. Peter said in Acts 5.29, after being ordered to stop preaching the gospel, it says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, at times, simply being a follower of Jesus Christ is an act of defiance in and of itself. You hear my heart. We are to love those outside the church. In fact, Paul said, we don't judge those in the world. We judge each other in the church to keep each other accountable. Do you hear what I'm saying? But we don't bow to the culture. Let's keep reading in our story, verses 19 through 23. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I guess he was. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. I think I went past where we were going to stop, okay? These three young men defy the satanic order of the king to put something from the culture of mankind before their God in their lives, and in response they're sentenced to a horrible and immediate death. Which brings us to our third point in our outline. Following Jesus Christ will cost you something. <coughs> there is always a cost associated with following Christ. In fact, Jesus himself, in reference to people deciding to follow him, said, Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Luke 14, 28. In other words, consider the cost of following me because, to be clear, it is going to cost you all that you have. It's going to cost you all that you are. There, there is no version of following Christ that is cheap or easy. In his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that is cheap or easy. And so it really is an indictment against some elements of the modern church that we've tried to make easy discipleship a selling point to the world so that we can swell our numbers. But the reality is becoming a Christian costs you everything. And of course, the benefits make it all worth it. Eternal benefits in this life and the next. And yet Jesus assured his followers, in this world you will have tribulation. John 16, And we'll talk about the second half of that verse in a moment. But the point here is, it's going to cost you something to follow after him. And if we're not willing to pay that price, we will never fulfill the purpose that he created us for. Think about that for a moment. If we're not willing to pay the price, we can never fulfill the purpose that he created us for. If you're a jockey and a racehorse owner, if you train in racehorses for a living, you can have 
all of the talents and giftedness in the world as a jockey. You, you can be the most gifted jockey on the planet, but if you're not willing to pay the price for the very best racehorse out there and all the costs associated with training and caring for that horse, and racehorses are expensive, high-maintenance animals. They require tremendous care at great expense to the owner. If you're not willing to pay that price... It doesn't matter how much talent and giftedness you have as a jockey because you'll never win a race. You can never fulfill all of your potential as long as you're riding a broken down horse that costs you very little. And yet I know people who are incredibly talented and gifted. Their, their potential to do great things for God is off the charts, but because they're unwilling to pay the price associated with living for Christ and instead choose security and comfort and low-risk pursuits or self-serving pursuits, they actually end up accomplishing very little for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus Christ is costly. And he said, in this world you'll have tribulation. And then the second half of that verse, and I'm grateful for that second half, he said, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. And actually, this is the part that we have the most trouble with. We totally get the part about it being costly, and, and so we sometimes, we just stall out right there, because we don't want to pay the price. But if we'll just follow him in faith... If we'll just believe in faith that he's overcome the world, even when we cannot see or predict the outcome, he will overcome every obstacle before us. And that's when we go on to realize our full potential in testing, in times of hardship, through suffering and through loss. That's when we realize our full potential. Because it cost us something to follow Christ. It's what he's put inside of us, this potential from before we were even born, but it cannot be realized if we don't pay that price. If, if you study the giants of the faith, men and women, it's certainly in scripture, but all through history right up to today, who went on in their lives to achieve the most astonishing accomplishments for Christ in this world. If you look at their lives, there is a common denominator between them all. Their success that they experienced for God, for each one of them came at a great cost to them personally. I've said it often. I'll probably say it many more times. You can have great risk without great success. But you cannot have great success without great risk. Following Jesus Christ will always cost you something. Let's finish this part of our story for today, starting at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. It's a little different attitude now. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I love the fact that all these powerful men saw and witnessed what God had just done. 
Nebuchadnezzar had answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Talk about a moody guy. He's just one extreme to the other here. The king, in, in the most creative ways that he chooses to kill people, makes good on his promise. He tosses these three guys into the fiery furnace. And then he looks inside from a safe distance away and he asks his now famous question. Didn't we throw three guys in there? And they said to the king, yeah, we did. And he said, uh, but I see four walking around in the midst of the fire. And they don't seem to be hurt. And of course... There's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not the fourth person in the furnace was actually the pre-incarnate Christ or simply some kind of angel sent by God. If you read it in the original Aramaic that it was written in, when Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 25 that the fourth person in the furnace is like a son of the gods, that was actually an Aramaic expression, uh, the, a son of God's part. It's translated uh, to mean literally a divine being. So it isn't necessarily a direct reference to the Christ. And then again in, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants. So there's no definitive proof in the scriptures to make a sure case either way. But the bigger point to be made is the fact that this was obviously a physical demonstration of God's presence with his believers in their greatest time of distress. In their darkest hour, God was fully with them. Why? Because even though there will be tribulation for you in this world, I have overcome. I have overcome. He's with us. It's, it's a fulfillment of his promise to his people about a hundred years or so earlier. In Isaiah 43, 2 and 3, he said, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God never abandons us just because times get tough. He is not far from us when we're following Him. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. Nothing in this world can keep you from following Jesus Christ. Nothing. There is no power in this world that can stop us from fulfilling our God-given purpose in this life. The Bible says that God has ordained every single one of our days before we were even born. There is nothing in this world that can overcome or overtake that which God has already ordained. And so what actually keeps us from doing what we've been called to do is not the powers of this world at all. It's the fear that we have of the powers of this world. We fear that which has no power over us. And it's that fear that stops us from fulfilling our purpose. And so the thing that we fear is actually not the problem. It's the fear itself. It doesn't seem to me that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had any fear of what might happen to them should they take a stand for God because clearly they knew that His will would be accomplished as they kept their faith in Him regardless of their circumstances. In fact, regardless of their outcome. 
And what we see then is God fulfilling his promise to protect his people as they serve him, even when that means defying the world. And yet it was not the promise of deliverance that motivated these men to obedience. This is important. What motivated them to defy the king and stand for God despite the cost was not the promise of some type of physical or material blessing. It was simply their love and devotion to God, not the promise of deliverance or some other thing from God. In verses 17 and 18, after being threatened with death, they said, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, that's quite a thing to say for these men of faith. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will, and you could insert the word still right there, we will still not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. In other words, even if we don't achieve the outcome that we're hoping for, we still defy the evil in this world simply out of obedience to our God. It had nothing to do with what he might give them. The lives and experiences of these three men are in here for a reason. These are lessons that the modern church really needs to grasp if we're going to have any real impact in our world today because we've been conditioned for decades now to be motivated by an expectation of a return on our investment. I put $10 in the plate, I expect $100 back. If I have faith enough for healing, I expect I'll be healed. If I give to others, I expect he will give to me. Now listen, there are a lot of promises in Scripture to that effect. Right? We can and we should expect things from Him. Absolutely. Because there is indeed reciprocal blessing in this life when we live in obedience to God's Word. And that is purely wonderful truth for us to behold. And yet our motivation for serving Him cannot be that shallow. We serve God because of who He is. Because we love Him as He first loved us. And how do we show our love for Him? It's not by believing with a steely resolve and a strong faith for some kind of material or physical blessing. That's not how we prove our love to God. How do we do it? By serving Him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So do we believe for good things? Do we hope for reciprocal blessings in this life from God? Of course we do. Yes, absolutely. And yet, if and when, the cost is greater than we anticipated. And the blessing doesn't come when we thought or how we thought it would. Do we still have the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? A heart that says, but if not. But if not. If it doesn't work out like I thought it would, if, if I don't receive what I was expecting, if the landscape looks different than what I anticipated, I will still stand for Christ, come what may. I will allow my faith to conquer my fear. I will defy the dark powers of this world. I will speak the truth with love and compassion, without apology or compromise, and I will live out the gospel with passion and conviction, even if the fires of hell come against me, because there is no power on this earth that can keep me from my God. The Apostle Paul said, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor all the things that we worry about tomorrow to come, no powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Philippians 1.21, he said these now famous words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a perspective. What a perspective to have on this life and living for God. When we follow Jesus Christ, when we defy the dark powers in this world, when we pay the price that must be paid to follow him, when we live the gospel, all that there is, even in death, all that there is for the Christian is gain. Let's pray.